Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome, Calvary Quakertown. And this is our second installment in our Revelation series. And just to remind you of a couple of goals, one of our goals is to take some of the mystery and mystique out of the book and to look at and focus on some of the main themes, not just to learn about the themes, but to talk about how we can live out those themes in our lives. And I want to start this morning by asking you a couple of questions. You ever read through the scripture and every once in a while you stop and you ask yourself, I wonder if he or she thought that was worth it. Let me give you a few examples. Abraham, was it worth it to leave your hometown, your familiar surroundings, your family and friends, travel halfway around the world, not even knowing where the destination is, and once you get there, you never own land that God was sending you to. Was it worth it? Or how about Moses? Forfeit the treasures and pleasures of Egypt to be identified with a group of slaves and then lead them, those rebellious people, through the desert to a promised land and you never get to enter it. Was it worth it? John the Baptist, was it worth it to speak truth to Herod's face and lose your head? One of the disciples, was it worth it to give up your career, be slandered and ridiculed and not know exactly where it's going to turn out? How about Mary? Was it worth it? Have a apparently illegitimate kid be ostracized by the people in your town and then watch your son executed as a criminal? Was it worth it? Or maybe we need to uh, make the question a little more personal. Is it worth it? Is it worth it to uh, tell the truth when lying would get you out of trouble or get you a promotion or a raise? Is it worth it to get up 30 or 45 minutes before you have to get up to spend time praying through the day, reading the scripture, getting ready? Is it worth it? Is it worth it to live on less so you can be generous to people who don't have as much? Is it worth it to live in obedience to God when the whole culture seems to be headed in the opposite direction? Is it worth it? I want to answer those two questions this morning. Now, I'm going to tell you right up front. I'm going to give you the short answer and yeah, then the long answer. Here's the short answer. Yes! Uh, that doesn't mean we're done. Yes! We even sing a song like that, right? Jesus is worthy of every song we'll ever sing. Jesus worthy of every temptation we'll ever avoid and stand against. Jesus worthy of every act of obedience. Jesus worthy of every drop of blood that martyrs ever shed. Jesus worthy of every sacrifice you and I will ever make because those pale in comparison to the sacrifice he made for us. Is it worth it? You bet it is. Because Jesus is worthy, that's why it's worth it. Well, that's the short answer. Now, the long answer comes in Revelation chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation 1. You can use your phone, your iPad, your whatever you want. I'm going to begin reading in verse 9. I'm going to read through the end of the chapter. 
And when you come to this section of Revelation, we are now ready for our first example of apocalyptic literature. So remember we said apocalyptic literature, lots of symbolism, numbers are important. And here's what you need to remember as I read this. When you read an apocalyptic vision, whether it's here, Daniel, Ezekiel, the goal is not so that you can draw a picture. That's not the goal. The goal is to create an impression. The visions are creating an impression. And so when we read this apocalyptic vision, how are you impressed? How do you think John was impressed? Verse nine. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was one like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars and Coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death in Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, here's an easy way for you to think about those verses. Um, we start with, this, with a, the situation, right? We read that, verses 9 through 11. Then we have a description of Jesus, that apocalyptic vision with lots of symbols, not to draw a picture, but to create an impression. And then the commission, after the vision, Jesus tells John to do something, right? Situation, description, commission. That's where we're going. Well, what's the description? Well, here's what it says in verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, here's a little interesting twist. We're not making any statements yet about what this all means. But the words actually read, if I literally were to translate that, here's what John says. I, John, your brother and companion in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance. So John is suffering, right? Tribulation is coming his way. But yet the kingdom is also present in his life and in the world, but he's patiently enduring. He's on the island of Patmos and he's there because of the word of God. All right, so here is our best, my best understanding of what's going on. 
Um, as I said last week, lots of disagreement about Revelation. There's disagreement as to when it was written, and there's even disagreement about who wrote it. And so, which John is this? Um, he doesn't say, I, John the Apostle. He doesn't say, I, John, son of Zebedee. He doesn't say, I, John, brother of James. He just says, I, John. And he said, John, earlier. Well, there's a big debate, right? Um, I tend to think it is John the Apostle, but if you disagree with that, that that's okay. Uh, we're going to work, th work through the book as if it's John the Apostle, right? Later in life, he's been at Ephesus for a while, and he's writing. What's he doing on the island of Patmos? Is that like vacation? Uh, no, no, no. He's on the island of Patmos because of the word of God. It seems like he's been exiled there. Island off the coast a little bit. He's been sent there. If they couldn't kill him and shut him up, at least they can exile him and get him out of the way. All the other apostles by this time are, are dead, except John. And so he's on the island, he's been exiled to keep him quiet. That's the situation. And then we come to the description, this apocalyptic vision of Jesus. Now, I'm not going to walk through what every little thing means. You can read things in the Old Testament about that. Remember, we're looking at the main themes, and a lot of the details, are, I would say, are not meant to be looked at in isolation. The compilation of the images is creating an impression. I'm going to tease out a few things that the overall picture and some of the details point to. Here's the first one. Jesus is the authority, right? His voice is like the sound of rushing waters. This isn't a little trickle, right? John hears a voice like a trumpet. You ever have a trumpet, somebody blowing right behind your head, right? It'll wake you up, right? Why, why do you think people in a band wear um, you know, earplugs or put those earphones in in front so they don't go deaf, John hears a voice behind him like a trumpet blowing right behind his head. The voice of many waters, not a babbling brook. He's standing in front of the Niagara. He, can, he can't hear anything else. He's demanding his attention. Yeah, Jesus is the authority and he's the author. In fact, that is actually pointed out. Um, and here's like kind of bookends. The book of Revelation begins with God saying, I am, in the, I am the Alpha and Omega. That's back to verse eight. And interestingly, the book closes in Revelation 21 and Revelation 22 with Jesus saying, I am the Alpha and Omega, right? Now, what's Alpha and Omega mean? Well, Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. God, Jesus, right, started it all, and he will end it all. And everything in between, he's writing the script. Things are happening right on schedule. Things are happening according to plan. It may not be happening according to your plan. My guess is it's not. But it is happening to God's plan. And sometimes we want to pull our hair out and shake our heads as if, you know, the world's running off the, running off the rails. No, no, no. God's got this. He's the author and the authority. He pulled the curtain open to start history, and he'll pull it closed to end history and begin the next chapter in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, what's our responsibility knowing that Jesus is the Alpha and Omega? Well, if he's the author and the authority, it kind of makes sense to live in sync with that, don't you think? If he's the author and he's the authority, you're going to get broken if you try to live apart from that. Live in sync, cooperate with what he's doing. Um, you know, the one thing... Um, 
Kim and I, Kim's my wife, the, the one thing we, we've been praying almost every morning together for a while, and you know, we go through, here are the things we want to see happen, Lord, here's what we want, but the one thing we've been praying lately more than anything else, Lord, help us to cooperate with you today. Um, you know what you're doing, we don't know what we're doing, right? We want to cooperate with you. Whatever your plan is, wherever you're doing, we want to cooperate with that. Now, when I talk about author and authority, um, I have occasionally shared with you my lack of mechanical thought and ability. So I usually think of my car or work. With all, and uh, I had another example this way. God gives me these so I can tell you. Um, a little light comes on my car uh, last weekend, a matter of fact, and it said, um, maintenance required. Now, I've learned from experience that doesn't mean it's really required. That means they would like you to spend a little money to get the oil changed, tires rotated, that kind of stuff, right? And you can let it on for a little bit, but I, I say, you know what, I'm not going to let it on. So I call, make an appointment, take the car in. I say, I've got to wait for it, got to be quick, right? An hour and a half later was pretty good. Um, hour and a half later, go out, and the little light was out. Yes, Charles, you did this. You are like mechanically inclined now. But then little irritants began for the next 24 hours. Later that night, I was leaving church, I get in the car, and um, I noticed that, I, I didn't notice this until I'm almost out of the parking lot when people were shining their high beams at me. I usually have my headlights on auto, that means I don't know if they remember to turn them on. Well, they must have taken them off auto because I have no headlights pulling out of the parking lot, people kind of yelling at me, flashing. So I, fix, I know how to turn auto, I turn auto, I'm set now. I wasn't sure I had it correct, but I, so when I was home, I waited in the garage to make sure the lights went out, uh, so I didn't run the battery, and it went out. I did it. But then irritant number two, and this one was a little more complicated. Every time I locked the car, the mirrors would retract. That never happened before. What the heck did they do? Now, you may, well, that's a good thing. That bugged me. I don't want my mirrors to retract. I want them to stay out. I want my own space, right? I don't, I don't want to pretend I'm, I want them out. I couldn't figure that out. I wasn't going to look through that giant owner's manual. For two days, I hit every button. You got a little thing and display. I'm going through all the display. You can't do this while you're driving. I kept getting, okay. I'm sitting at a red light. Put it in there. I'm going, I can't figure it out. So what do you do if you can't figure out something wrong with the car? You go to YouTube. And lo and behold, I YouTube, how do I keep my mirrors from retracting? And it was a 30-second video. I'm not going to tell you how easy it was to fix because I'm going to look like a moron. But my mirrors no longer retract. The author of the car said, if you don't want the mirrors to retract, here's what you do. I can play with the display button. I can try to hold them out there. It's not going to work. Jesus is the author and the authority. You can try to live life in opposition to him. It's not going to work. What's your prayer? Cooperate. Lord, help us to cooperate with you. He's the author and the authority. Then we have other images of Jesus. Um, he has hair, white like wool, right? His face is white. Um, now, you've got to understand, our culture is a youth-oriented culture, right? I, I was going to say, um, how many of you Dye your hair. Kim said, don't you dare ask that. <laughs> Many of you would lie anyway. Well, why, why do people in our culture dye their hair? Because youth is the priority, right? 
People want to appear young. People want to appear more vibrant. That's not the case in other cultures. That wasn't the case back in John's day. Age in John's day was associated with wisdom and knowledge. Now look, I know old people can be stupid. There are a number of examples in the room, right? Um, So age does not mean you're wise, but usually with age comes experience. As you live life, you learn through trial and error. And so age can bring expertise. Age can bring experience. That's the idea. So Jesus is perfectly white. He has all wisdom. Think of it this way. There is nothing that can be known that he doesn't know. Nothing. Another way to say that similar thing, his eyes are ablaze. He's got burning eyes. Uh, Now, we have metaphors that are a little, and idioms usually don't translate from one language to another. So here's an idiom that we have. Well, you help me, right? You know this idiom. Mothers have eyes in the... Now, now, do you mean that literally when you say that? I mean, that would freak you out, right? If your mom had a set of eyes back here and up here and, you know, you have to kind of part the hair so you can... No, it's an idiom. It means you can't escape what mothers know. Kids, don't think you can fool mom. She knows what you're doing even if she's not in the room. She can... Well, Jesus has eyes, that different culture, different idiom, that penetrate. Jesus knows all that can be known. Now, there's comfort in that. He knows when people gossip about you. He knows when you're exploited. He knows when you're oppressed. He knows when you're um, taken advantage of. And there's a scary part of that. He knows every deed you have ever done. He also knows every thought you've ever had every emotion you've ever felt, and here's the real scary one for me, and he knows every motive behind every one of them. You know, often we do really good things for lousy reasons. He knows the reason. His eyes penetrate. He knows all that can be known. We actually sang that, right, earlier this morning? He knows my faults and all my flaws, and he still calls me friend. That's amazing, right? We live life wanting to manage other people's impression of us, trying to hide our faults, hide our flaws. Um, Jesus knows them all. His eyes penetrate. They're ablaze. We also learn that Jesus is uh, unshakable and secure. Now, this um, picture here, Jesus has bronze feet, right? Like in a, in a furnace. Now, that, that can mean moral purity. It certainly means that, right? He's perfectly pure. But a lot of this imagery, you can check this later, is coming from Daniel, chapter 7 and chapter 10. You can read that. And uh, Daniel 7 and 10 follow a description of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Remember that? And in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, Nebuchadnezzar sees a statue. And as you work down the statue, the metals are becoming inferior. What kind of feet does the statue in Nebuchadnezzar's dream have? Clay feet. John, thinking of that, sees Jesus' feet, and he says, "Uh, no clay feet here. Jesus doesn't shake. 
Jesus is stable. Um, I met with some guys Friday morning, and we were talking about that. And the one guy said this. You know what? If you put your faith and trust in anything other than Jesus, you're going to live life blown over here and tossed there back because everything shakes. That's right. So if your trust for the future is the market, I don't care which version of that, it's going to shake, right? If you're trusting people, they're going to let you down. If you're trusting institutions, they're going to fail you at times. Only Jesus doesn't waver. Only Jesus, he's stable and secure forever. And he's perfect and pure in holiness. Right? That his face is like, the blazing sun. And that's why we can't get hung up on all the details, right? Because John's obviously having a hard time looking at this. It's so brilliant. His face was like the sun shining. It's all of his brilliance. His feet are like burnished bronze. An awesome picture. Now, we really know about holiness because of what John does. What does John do? Now, before we answer that, let me just remind you, right, if, if my assumption is correct. John would have been a follower of Jesus for decades at this point. He heard Jesus preach sermons. He saw Jesus do miracles. He traveled with Jesus. He saw Jesus crucified, and he was there to see Jesus raised from the dead. And yet in Revelation chapter 1, he catches a glimpse in, of Jesus in just a fraction of his glory. And what does he do? When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Yeah, you, uh, you bet he did. Catches a glimpse of Jesus in just a slice of his glory. He falls to the ground, and my guess is he is shaking in terror. He knows Jesus longer than most of us have known him, and he's scared to death. But you know what? Before you... Uh, before you think that that seems strange, I would say that that's very normal. In fact, as you read through the Bible, people who catch a glimpse of God's glory, they assume that position. Let me mention uh, just a couple. Remember Manoah, right? Kind of Samson's dad. Now, the angel appears to Mrs. Manoah, and uh, she tells Mr. Manoah, that the angel, and he doesn't believe her, right? Crazy woman, I'm not believing her. The angel then shows up to Manoah. You know what he says? He goes home and he says to his wife, we need to put our affairs in order. We just saw God, we're dying, right? That's kind of the position. Remember when Jesus, he, even right without his glory in a sense being displayed, he goes on a fishing trip with Peter, he catches a huge amount of fish. What does Peter say? Get out of my boat. I'm an unclean man. You get away from me. How about Paul in Acts 9? Catches a glimpse of Jesus. What's he? he falls on his face. Who are you, Lord? Who are you? Yeah, John assumes the position. Oh, yeah, and you heard this a couple times already today. And so will you. I don't care how long you've been a Christian. I don't care how many times you've read Revelation. I don't know how well you know apocalyptic literature. I do know this. One day you will assume the position. And no one will have to force you down. 
You will catch a glimpse of Jesus in his glory. You will fall before him in terror. But notice what comes next. Jesus reaches, not to smack John, he reaches down with his right hand and he says, John, it's okay. It's me. I was alive, you remember. I was dead. I'm alive again, you remember? And I'm alive forever and ever. I now hold the keys of death and Hades. John, I am your savior. I am your friend. You have nothing to fear. I'll tell you what, with somebody like that on your side, you're good. Now, here's the next part. Jesus now has a job for John to do. Do you notice that? Like sometimes we miss this because we're caught up in the image. Hey, here's what verse 19 says. Um, so he says, I'm alive now. I hold the keys of death. And oh yeah, verse 19. Oh, John, by the way, I got something for you that I want you to do. Write therefore what you have seen, what is now, what will take place, the mystery of the seven stars. Write these things down and send them to the seven churches. Right? So here's my question. What do you think John did? Well, you can read it in chapter 2. He picked up a pen as fast as he could, and he started writing some letters. When you catch a picture, a glimpse of Jesus like that, his wish is your command, right? Remember Isaiah in Isaiah 6? Catches the, where's Isaiah? Woe is me. And then God says, huh, boy, I need somebody to go and do this. What's Isaiah say? Lord, if you could use somebody like me, It'd be my privilege if you would let me go for you. John, I've got a job for you. I need some letters sent. You know what John did? He cleared his schedule. All of his other priorities, all the items on the agenda, they were done for the day. And you know what? If you'd have caught a glimpse of that image, you'd have cleared your schedule too. Hey, yeah, we have caught a glimpse of that image. So what are you going to do with your schedule? What are you going to do with your priorities? Remember how we started? Is it worth it? Is it worth it to get up 30 or 45 minutes earlier to remind yourself of who he is and what really matters in life? Is it worth it to follow him when the world seems to be going in the opposite direction? Is it worth it to live on less than you could so you can generously give to others? Is it worth it to obey when it doesn't make sense and you can't see your way clear? Is it worth it? You bet it's worth it. Because he is worthy. The vision in Revelation 1 is not intended for you to go home and try to draw a picture. The image in Revelation 1 is to create an impression. Jesus is the author and the authority of all that exists. He has all knowledge and wisdom. He is unshakable and secure. And he is Savior to all who admit their failures and faults and trust him for their forgiveness. And then he says, 
I got a job for you guys. Oh, yeah. It's actually called a commission. Go and make disciples of all nations, and I will be with you until the end of the age. The Christian life actually follows the pattern that we read in Revelation 1, 9 through 20. The only thing in doubt is whether you'll cooperate with the commission or live on some other mission. But make no mistake, a million years from this morning, you can check me on this, check in, a million years from this morning, the only mission that will matter that day is the mission that Jesus went on and the mission he calls us to be partners in. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for this picture, a lot of which we don't understand. And yet, Lord, it's easy enough to catch a glimpse of the impression that John had and the impression that we need to have. Jesus, the Alpha and the Omega, the author and the authority. Jesus, the one with all wisdom and knowledge. Jesus, the one that's eternally secure and unshakable. Jesus is the one that calls us to be followers. He forgives our sin and then gives us a commission to continue what he started. Lord, help us not just to be awed by that privilege, but help us to pick up and cooperate as we fulfill that responsibility. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.